people are never going to understand how critical this particular time in history is. We have $7.7 trillion worth of economic events that are going to hit America in the gut. This is An Economy of One with Gary Rathbun, President and CEO of Private Wealth Consultants, the free market voice, free market voice. of the U.S., enhancing and protecting private wealth. Gary Rathbun has over 30 years of experience in making the best choices for you to keep more of what you earn. It's life, liberty, and the pursuit of self-reliance. An Economy of One with Gary Rathbun. This is our country. Greetings and welcome again to An Economy of One. I am your host, Gary Rathbun. Our number here, 844-244-3750. Toll free from anywhere. Our website, aneconomyofone.com, aneconomyofone.com, as is our Facebook an economy of one on Facebook. I'm going to spend most of today talking about banking, interest rates, and cash. Some interesting things on bonds out there. And joining us a little bit later is Peter J. Wallison. He's from the American Enterprise Institute. He's the author of Hidden in Plain Sight, What Really Caused the World's Worst Financial Crisis and why it could happen again. So Peter Wallison will be joining us a little bit later in the show. In looking at banking, I think it's important to go back and see what really created banking, what really created fractional banking, what created interest rates, and really what created fiat money. Now, I'm kind of a a history guy when it comes to economics. I love reading. And, uh, you know, the, the first bankers weren't even bankers. They were jewelers and goldsmiths, and the reason people essentially turned them into bankers was because they had secure vaults and guards. So people would bring their valuables to different jewelers and goldsmiths and rent out their storage space, essentially secure warehouse. And what, what happened was these, these jewelers and, and goldsmiths, they would give a receipt to the people who deposited stuff in their vaults. Now, all that sounds pretty customary. Nothing unusual there. But what happened is the people who had the receipts would use those receipts essentially as what we know today as money. So if they wanted something from somebody, they would trade their receipt for gold or silver or jewelry or whatever that was in the jeweler's vault for whatever commodity or service or product they wanted. And then those people would trade those receipts, thereby creating initially the first fiat money constantly circulating between buyers and sellers now the goldsmiths noticed something something else about this activity and that is that people rarely came to them with the receipt to redeem the valuable so goldsmiths started thinking hey wait a minute if most people don't come back and redeem the valuable, 
then why not start issuing receipts in excess of the gold and silver that we have in the vault? Then the goldsmiths could spend this currency themselves or lend it out to others, thus inventing business or consumer loans. So the receipts retain their value as long as everybody believed they retained their value, as long as they had confidence in the value that they could take that receipt and trade it to somebody else for something else or service or whatever. And uh, the goldsmiths uh, were happy with that because they had the valuable in their safe, but most people didn't redeem it so they could issue more receipts. Hence, fractional banking. Now, did they commit fraud? Was that a bad thing? Eh, you know, technically, they're, they're issuing receipts out there for things they don't have. <clears throat> but as long as everybody is satisfied, as long as people, when they wanted to redeem those receipts, got what they were expecting from the vault, everything is fine. So it does become a confidence game from the banking industry. Not unlike what we have today. We have fractional banking today. The, the, the amount of money that banks have on deposit is nowhere near, uh, sorry, the amount of cash they have in their banks is nowhere near what they would need if everybody redeemed their deposits. That's why deposits in a bank are considered a liability of the bank, and a loan from the bank is considered an asset of the bank. So as long as everybody is confident that the receipt they have can be exchanged for something of equal value, we're fine. The only time we run into problems is when essentially there's a run on the bank. Now, I read an interesting quote the other day, and, and forgive me, I forget who, who said it, but he essentially said <clears throat> that starting a run on a bank is really, really stupid. However, once a run on a bank has started, it's really, really stupid not to participate. So that's kind of where our banking system is today. We know that the bank doesn't have cash enough if there's a run on the bank. We know the FDIC doesn't have enough cash if more than a small segment of the market fails, more than a small number of banks fail. So the fractional banking system, the, the confidence game, if you will, the creation of fiat money goes back many, many, many years to originally jewelers and goldsmiths. There really was no such thing as bankers in the beginning. Now, what this does is create an elastic money supply. Now, the argument for creating the Federal Reserve back in 1913, 
was that phrase, an elastic money supply. When borrowers are optimistic and want to increase their borrowing, banks in a fractional reserve system can, in the aggregate, offer them immense amounts of new credit. So the money supply, instead of being determined by the amount of gold or silver or or other bank capital in the system or anything like that, the money supply is determined by credit. And that's why you hear some people say that money is not money. Money is not gold or gold is not money. Money is credit. And that's how our system is measured. Now, it can also contract dramatically. If an economy has greatly increased its money supply through lending, through credit, and it suddenly takes a downturn or is unnerved by an unexpected crisis, housing crisis, borrowers will pay off their loans or default on them and banks won't be able to replace them. So depositors then seek their money. They want their cash out. They want the the valuable out of the safe. And this will cause the money supply to essentially collapse. And it'll collapse all the way back to the base level of what's actually in the vault of the original jewelers and goldsmiths. So this creates what we call the business cycle. It's a recurring series of booms and busts, and it wipes out businesses sometimes, wipes out individuals and banks, and it'll send the general economy into a recession, and at worst case, send it into a depression. In fact, the Great Depression back in the 30s was caused by fractional reserve banking. Wanted to give you that little bit of history. Coming up, we're going to talk about one of the major banks, economists out there, talking about eliminating cash and some disturbing, disturbing trends around that. Don't forget, bottom of the hour, Peter J. Wallison will be joining us from the American Enterprise Institute. It's an economy of one with Gary Rathbun. Now, back to An Economy of One with Gary Rathbun. We are back. Our number here, 844-244-3750. Toll free from anywhere. Our website, aneconomyofone.com, as is our Facebook, An Economy of One. Coming up in our next segment, Peter Wallison from the American Enterprise Institute, author of the book, Hidden in Plain Sight, What Really Caused the World's Worst Financial Crisis, and why it could happen again. JP, uh, Citigroup. Yeah, it wasn't JP Morgan yet. Citigroup's chief economist, gentleman by the name of Willem Buter, came out recently talking about eliminating cash. Now, this guy's always been a central bank 
interventionist. I mean, uh, the the more central bank, uh, the bigger it gets, the better he likes it. And the 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 trouble with cash in the system is banks then cannot create or have a negative interest rate. We're hearing more and more about NIRP, N-I-R-P, negative interest rate program. And what happens is in, in a negative interest rate, two different things happen. One, if you have deposits in a bank, your deposits go down in value. Instead of earning interest, they take money out. It's, it's like a fee on your deposits. The other thing that happens in a negative interest rate is bonds will increase in value to the point where the coupon rate or the interest rate on the bond turns negative. Now, we'll talk about the negative interest rates on bonds a little bit later, but let's stick with the the central banks. Now, central banks really have a problem. When economic uh, conditions get bad, they react by reducing interest rates with the idea that they will stimulate the economy. But what's happening across the world recently, in recent years anyway, comes to a point where those central banks run out of room to cut. They can't lower interest rates anymore. They brought interest rates down to zero. By reducing them further, that's where they start getting into problems. And the problems are worse if there is cash in the economy. Think about this. If you deposit money into a bank, you put your cash in there, and the bank adopts a negative interest rate policy, what are you going to do? What are you going to do? You can say, oh, geez, that stinks. They're taking a piece of my deposit. Geez, I hope they don't take too big of a piece. That's not what we do. What we do is we withdraw our cash. If you lose money by having it in the bank, and at least you stay even by tucking it in the mattress, what are you going to do? Cash gives people an easy and very effective way of avoiding negative interest rates. You're still subject to inflation. I understand that. But generally speaking, inflation and negative interest rates don't go together. So this economist says there's only three ways to address the problem. One, abolish currency. Two, tax currency. Or three, remove the fixed exchange rate between currency and central bank reserves. What we're going to talk about today is abolishing the currency. Now, I'm one of those... I don't think that's likely to happen anytime soon, but I do believe it could happen. So as central banks look at this, it's very possible, and there's there's been talk of this around the world. Now, this economist, Buter, says there is a little controversy around it that... Uh, you know, it would change people's lives. Uh, poor people and older people would get hit more. So he suggests 
well, you know, we won't eliminate currency altogether. We'll, we'll keep ones and fives, small amounts uh, of currency. Central banks and governments would lose their signage revenue, which is the difference between the face value of money and what it costs them to print it. So if they produce a dollar bill, it costs them a nickel and it's worth a dollar. There's 95% essential profit to the central bank. The big one is abolishing currency would inevitably be associated with loss of privacy. Really? If you can't do private transactions in cash, if everything has a paper trail, the government sees everything. That's the big problem I have with eliminating currency. So it's it's not likely but the fact that these people at this level are talking about it tells me maybe it's possible. So we'll keep in mind, we'll keep following this and see where it goes. But we're going to have negative interest rates and we'll talk a little bit about more, a little bit more about those coming up. Coming up next, Peter J. Wallison from the American Enterprise Institute. I'm Gary Rathbun. It's an economy of one. Gary Rathbun, an economy of one. Now, back to An Economy of One with Gary Rathbun. Joining us now is Peter J. Wallison, author of the book, Hidden in Plain Sight, What Really Caused the World's Worst Financial Crisis and Why It Could Happen Again. Peter's a co-director of the American Enterprise Institute's Program on Financial Policy Studies. He's a co-chair of Financial Reform Task Force in 2009 and a member of the Financial Crisis Inquiry Commission in 2009. Peter? Welcome to the show. Good to be here. Thanks very much. I appreciate you taking the time for it. I read your book, a terrific book, and it gave me a lot of insights. And uh, don't quite know where to start, but one of the interesting things uh, you point out is that uh, one of the root causes of the 2008 financial uh, uh, problems all started back in 1992. (laughs) That's right. It It took a while to develop. But uh, our housing, our housing finance market is an enormous market. Many people have mortgages, of course. Mm-hmm. Fifty-five million people have mortgages, and so it takes a long time to uh, d- cause a market of that size to deteriorate. Uh, and in this case, it took 16 years between 1992 and 2008 before we had a crisis as a result of the poor quality of mortgages that the government's policies uh-huh. pulled into the financial system. You know, one of the things that, you know, I, I, I one of the observations you make that I, 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 as I read it, I thought, well, yeah, I knew that, but I didn't really think about it. And that's, there, there was a lot of prime borrowers that essentially agreed to non-traditional mortgages under these these new rules with little or no down payment. And that, eventually added a lot to the subprime problem, didn't it? Yes, that's exactly right. Um, the purpose of the government's policies was to 
provide much more mortgage credit to low-income people. Mm. That was the idea behind it. And yet, once they started reducing underwriting standards in order to capture and lure low-income people into the housing finance market, of course, everybody else also wanted the opportunities mm. that were provided. So down payments were reduced substantially. And as a result of that, and it's not only down payments, but other elements of underwriting standards, as a result of that, many people who were not low-income also got mortgages that were very weak and uh, defaulted as soon as uh, the economy turned and uh, the, the bubble that we had created began to collapse. You know, a couple of weeks ago, uh, I had started reading your book and I started talking about it on air. And, and that was one of the first things that really grabbed me. And I, I told my audience, I said, think of this, that you was going to put 20% down on a house. You had the cash and the rules are such that you can put 5% down, people ended up buying about four times the house that they really should have, and that's kind of what got them in trouble. I mean, it, yeah. it, these were prime, you know, I had a, had a decent credit rating. They weren't, uh, you know, 650 and under, but uh, what, what's the other criteria? The, the debt-to-income ratio um, got skewed as well as the, the down payment. Sure, everything did, and and um, it was a, a government policy that went askew. Um, it was badly designed at the beginning, um, and it was focused on the two major players in our housing finance market, Fannie Mae and Freddie Mac. Mm -hmm. They were told, we want a certain percentage of all the mortgages that you buy from banks and other originators to be made to people below median income, and in order to meet that government quota, they had to reduce their underwriting standards, and you're entirely right. Look, when if you have, say, $20,000 and you want to buy a house, mm -hmm. um, and the down payment requirement is 10%, well, then you can buy a $200,000 house. But if the down payment requirement goes to 5%, you can buy a $400,000 right. house, and you mm -hmm. can imagine how much money then is chasing housing prices. Right. And, of course, that was one of the major contributors to a gigantic bubble that made many people believe that these gains were going to go on forever. And, of course, they don't. Right. There comes a point where people cannot afford a house because the prices have risen so high. The bubble tops, tops out and begins to decline, and that's when we've had the financial crisis. You know, with with Fannie and Freddie, I mean, in the old days, and, you know, I, I don't mean, you know, 1920, the, the, the old days, they took mainly uh, traditional standard mortgages. As the, the rules relaxed, as they were required to take stuff, didn't that pretty much take conventional banks out of the business? I mean, didn't everybody then say, well, screw it, I'm just going to, take this mortgage, uh, I'm not real concerned about the provisions because Fannie and Freddie will buy it because they have to. Yeah, well, that's true of the banks, certainly, and the other originators. Um, and they were induced to make these mortgages because Fannie and Freddie were telling them, if you make these mortgages, we will buy them mm -hmm. because they are eligible to get us credit with the government for what we'll call the affordable how to meet the affordable, what we call the affordable housing goals that were adopted in 1992. So 
all of the originators in the U.S. system, banks and, and mortgage brokers and mortgage bankers and many others, were lured into a system in which they could make any kind of terrible loan because Fannie and Freddie had told them they would buy that loan, and they make a fee on it uh, from the sale of the loan to Fannie and Freddie. Right. Um, but ultimately what it does is it reduces underwriting standards for everybody throughout the country. And so, as I say in the book, by, by the year 2008, more than the majority of mortgages in this country were either subprime or very weak for other reasons, such as they had very low down payments. And of those, of that, that was 31 million mortgages. Of those mortgages, 76% of those poor quality mortgages were on the books of government agencies. My goodness. So but, that shows you where the demand came from. Yeah, I mean, it's, it's yeah. as clear as it could possibly be. Well, and all the wrong players had an incentive to keep it going. I mean, the banks had an incentive to do it. Real estate companies and, and realtors had an incentive to talk. I mean, once again, not to pick on them because there's a lot of good realtors out there, but the commission on a $200,000 house versus the commission on a $400,000 house doesn't take a real sharp pencil to figure out which one is the better one for, you got it. you know, putting right. food on the table, you know. That's right. That's so right. Uh, <laughs> now that now one of the other things is how much uh, of the bubble was inflated because housing prices kept going up and these same people kept pulling out uh, the additional home equity every uh, yeah. every year. Well, that weakened mortgages, certainly. Um, and when people were able to refinance their homes um, because the home prices went up, and then they were allowed also to take cash out, mm -hmm. reducing the actual equity. You see, maybe the, the, the home prices increased, so they had some more equity in their home. They then refinanced, and they took the cash out. That weakens the mortgage substantially. It makes the mortgage much riskier for the lender. Mm. Now, you would imagine that in, in the real world, Fannie and Freddie would say, well, we will not buy mortgages where people are taking cash out because those mortgages are just getting weaker. Mm -hmm. um, and we don't want the weaker mortgages. We want mortgages with a good amount of equity underneath them when people really have a stake in their homes. But they didn't say that because to meet the government quota, they had to buy these mortgages, even though they were much weaker mortgages after the refinancing than they were before the refinancing. You know, 100 years ago when I was in college, <clears throat> one of my economics professors uh, gave me a quote that I have never, ever forgotten. And that quote is, there's no end to the good do-gooders will do with other people's money. <laughs> and, and exactly. You, you just look at this and, and you look back, and, you know, a lot of people blamed... Uh, Alan Greenspan, Chairman Greenspan, for lowering the interest rates too low, making it too easy. But you look at, you know, the CEO of Fannie and Freddie, and, uh, you know, some of those guys walked away with five, six, seven million dollars in bonuses and, and uh, income and that kind of stuff. So they were hitting their bogeys and oh, yeah. uh, getting rewarded for it. Well, I hate to say this, but it was much more than five, six, seven million. Was it? I, yeah. <laughs> I'll defer I mean, to the expert sorry, on that. So. I'm sorry to say that, but, um, <laughs> but Frank Raines, who was one of the last chairs of, of Fannie Mae, walked away with $90 million. Oh, my gosh. And his vice chair, 
uh, walked away with $26 million, 500, $500 million, so $26,500,000. Uh, so it was, they were making a fortune out of what was essentially a government job. My Because the goodness. government was backing them and they, they had everything they needed to, um, uh, to do the business and dominate the business because of the government backing. Now, all things being equal, you know, like you said, I read through your book and, and you make a couple, uh, you make a lot of bold statements and, and conclusions in there, which I agree with. But one of them is that you don't think Fannie Mae and Freddie Mac are going to, going to be around forever, that they're eventually going to go away. And, uh, are they, they going to go away? Will we get back to a private mortgage sector or are they just going to be replaced by another government agency? Well, that is exactly the question, Gary, and that's what um, <clears throat> will resolve uh, Fannie Mae and Freddie Mac. They, the, the issue in Washington now is pretty clear to me, that is. Either we, we uh, take the government out of the housing finance system, mm-hmm. um, or we have another uh, re- a replacement for Fannie Mae and Freddie Mac with the government controlling the housing finance system. Now, I am very strongly in favor of getting the government out of the housing finance system because I think the government has an incentive to reduce underwriting standards. And what the, the, and the reason for that is really simple, and that is if you reduce underwriting standards, more people can buy homes, they can spend more for these homes, mm-hmm. and when they do that, that helps the economy. Right. And from the standpoint of the government, this is what they want. They want the economy to grow. The trouble is that the economy grows for a period of time, and then we have another crash, and people lose their homes, and people who actually are still paying their mortgages also suffer. And this is a very important thing for all Americans to understand, and that is if underwriting standards go down and a person in your neighborhood is able to buy a home but not sustain the mortgage on that home, not pay that mortgage, that home is foreclosed, and the value of all the houses in the neighborhood then go down. And so the American people have to understand this is not something that favors them or helps them if they are homeowners because it eventually results in the kind of crash in housing values that hurts everyone who is a homeowner. I'm talking with Peter Wallison, author of the book Hidden in Plain Sight, What Really Caused the World's Worst Financial Crisis and Why It Could Happen Again. Peter, I appreciate all your time uh, tonight. I hope we can tap you on the shoulder again. And and I got about 15 more questions I didn't have time to ask. But... uh, Just let me know anytime. I appreciate it, Peter. Good talking to you. Thanks very much, Gary. Coming up, J.P. Morgan has an interesting interesting request or requirement, whichever way you want to look at it, about cash in safety deposit boxes. We'll talk about that next. Gary Raspin, an economy of one. Now, back to An Economy of One with Gary Rathbun. We are back. Thanks for staying with me. You know, J.P. Morgan came out this week and uh, sent all their customers a letter that has safety deposit boxes asking them, they will no, or telling them, they will no longer allow cash to be stored in safety deposit boxes. Now, think of this. Think of this. Safety 
deposit box. Supposed to be private, but they don't want you putting cash in there. Now, we talked earlier about uh, prominent economists saying we ought to abolish cash altogether. And now J.P. Morgan comes out and they're banning the storage of cash in their safety deposit boxes. Now, if you sign up for a, uh, a box, you have to agree not to store any cash or coins other than those found to have a collective value. Furthermore, the next time you go in, you got to have two forms of ID, and they will be issuing a four-digit PIN number that will be used to access the box then and in the future. So uh, you got to hide your wallets. The banksters are on the move. I mean, it, it restricts, I mean, already Chase restricts borrowers from using cash to make payments on credit cards, mortgages, equity lines, auto loans. Um, you know, th this is, this could be the beginning of the elimination of cash. Already we've seen where the Justice Department is ordering banks to consider calling the cops on you if you withdraw $5,000 or more. 5000 bucks. Now, understand, I respect money. I pick up pennies off the sidewalk, so 5000 is a lot of money, but it's not really a lot of money. Now, this is all in the name of protecting you from terrorists, trying to catch drug dealers, that kind of stuff. That's what they tell us. The reality is central banks are having a tougher and tougher time throughout the world because of what we talked about before, negative interest rates. Now, neg negative interest rates can also be on bonds, and there's a lot of bonds out there that have negative interest rates. David Stockman on his uh, uh, website, David Stockman's Contra Corner, uh, talks about the $5.3 trillion of government bonds that now have negative yields. Now, I wanted to point out a couple things. One, what he's talking about, all these government bonds, the vast majority of them are in Europe. We're not talking about American government bonds, at least not yet. And they're not issuing them with a negative yield. They have become a negative yield. So if, if a government like, I don't know, Germany, Spain, France, somebody over there, issues a bond with a, uh, let's say, a 1% interest rate, and it's a two-year bond. So you put $100,000 in, you get 1% each year for the next two years, you get $2,000. Well, if you sell that bond before it matures and you sell it for 103000 well, the person who bought it paid 103000 for something that's only going to generate 102000 It's a negative yield. And why would anybody do that? Why would you buy a bond knowing you were going to lose $1,000 on it by the time it matured? Well, there's a couple reasons why you would do that. The first is negative government bonds represent what we call a regime change or a potential regime change. So the government is going to change 
relatively soon, or their policies are going to drastically change relatively soon, thereby creating a positive interest rate on those bonds. The other aspect you want to look at when investing in foreign bonds is the exchange rate. Right now, the dollar is very strong. So if you have a different currency as your home currency, you could invest at negative interest rates by converting your currency to dollars, using dollars to buy that negative rate. And then when it matures, you exchange it back to euros or reals or yen or whatever, and therefore making money on the arbitrage, making money on the exchange rate. Is it a gamble? Absolutely. All investing is a gamble. But it's not the, I guess what I want to convey is it's not the Armageddon that some of these pundits, however smart they are, and I really respect David Stockman and his uh, writings on Contra Corner. Brilliant man. He was in the Reagan White House. Brilliant guy. But I think that you got to look at it from a little bit different perspective. And one, our bonds are not trading at a negative interest rate. And two, there are reasons why you would invest in a bond that has negative interest rates. So I wanted to lay that out there. I hope this has been beneficial to you from a standpoint of learning about banking, learning how it was created and how fractional banking came about. I want you to have a great day. I want you to be an individual, be self-reliant, be an economy of one. I'm Gary Rathman. We'll see you next time. This is our country. The views expressed on this program do not necessarily reflect the views of this station. Listeners should consult their own financial advisors or conduct their own due diligence before making any financial decisions. Private Wealth Consultants is an SEC-registered investment advisor.